everyone, welcome to AHP's Off the Record. My name is Enna. And my name is Jo. And as usual, we are your hosts for the podcast. Um, this is our third episode, and we're joined by another very special guest, again remotely. Um, we thought it would be good to have a chat with someone from one of our more recent additions to the AHP family. Um, so this time we're talking to an osteopath. Um, we are very grateful to have Robin Landsman join us today. Robin, thank you so much for, for joining us. And um, do you mind just having um, telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me on. It's very good to be here. Um, yeah, I'm an osteopath. I've been qualified uh, about 32 years, which is quite a while. Um, mm. And I studied in London. Um, and since then, I've actually worked out in Berkshire and London in private practice mostly. Uh, and worked within some GP uh, surgeries and also within gym and health kind of club environments as well. So a little bit of variety. Um, and certainly, uh, yeah, it's been uh, interesting working also um, in sort of the governance and, and uh, in a sense, running the profession. Um, a little while ago, I was president of our institute, uh, which, again, kept me incredibly busy and on the board there for about six <laughs> or seven years. So, yeah. Wow. Years. Yeah. That's amazing. Fantastic. Um, so what we've been doing before starting the podcast is, is giving a bit of a definition of the profession of the person that we are interviewing for anyone who might not know who they are or what they do. Um, Robin, you can be the judge and feel free to chip in if we have missed anything. Um, I apologise, I am reading this because I don't know off the tip of my tongue exactly what an osteopath does. <laughs> Um, so osteopathy is described of, as a way of detecting, treating and preventing health problems through interventions such as touch, physical manipulation, stretching and massage. Osteopaths also have a strong focus on promoting general health and well-being by providing advice on exercise, posture and lifestyle to complement their manual therapy and to aid recovery and prevent symptoms or injury from recurring. Osteopaths work in a variety of settings, such as outpatient departments, GP practices and specialist clinics, and they treat patients with a huge range of conditions, for example, arthritis, back pain, sports injuries, chronic pain, migraines and postural problems. How was that, Robin? Well, there's a lot in there, but I think, yeah, osteopathy is quite a broad spectrum. And uh, I think that, that that's a reasonable approach, I think, and a reasonable summary. So I'm happy with that to work with. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect, that's good. All right. Okay, so shall, shall we get started with the questions then? Indeed. I think so. Mm -hmm. So Robin, I'm going to be asking you your first question. It's probably with all the experience and things that you've you've had, this is probably going to be a bit of an interesting question, but how did you first get into osteopathy? Well, actually, um it is Quite often the case with students I've taught and others um, that osteopaths often come in through a personal uh, connection to osteopathy whether it's because they've had an injury or a problem or a family member has um, and that's pretty universal actually amongst osteopaths who are so happy with what they heard happen they sort of wanted to pursue the career um, yeah. so my case um, yeah it was my mum actually when I was a young sort of 11 12 year old um, we did it on a very rainy August in North Wales. We uh, were doing jigsaws for days and days. And uh, my mum suddenly had a very acute, well, I say acute, a very bad back at the time, as we called it. And mm -hmm. um, actually was in such agony for weeks, uh, ended up being passed around. And we are talking, you know, 30 odd years ago, um, 
was passed around a lot, trying to get help in various traditional routes, was on mm. various types of medication, uh, was on traction in hospitals for weeks, uh, wow. had an epidural that didn't help, and wow. was also possible surgery, having had a scan at the time, but wasn't quite convinced or ready for that. And then someone uh, started, uh, a family friend actually said, why don't you try an osteopath? I go to one and uh, he's helped me. Um, and my mum still actually ummed and ahed for quite a long time, not sure what to do, uh, and eventually saw that osteopath for treatment. And um, and in fact, three or four sessions later, in fact, probably after one or two, and I remember the results, even as a kid, actually, um, the difference in her mood and ability to be a family member again was just profound. So Amazing. that, I think, is what, you know, that that's what really sort of drew me to finding out more about osteopathy. Quite similar with um, physios as well. We, but I think we both in our first podcast were discussing that we kind of came to physiotherapy through a through a personal um, experience as well. So that's really interesting mm. to hear. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a good driver, and I think it keeps osteopaths very uh, focused on why they want to be an osteopath and what they want to achieve. Actually, I think it's mm. a, very much a focus from the beginning of everybody's career, and it really almost everybody actually that I've met has a has a mm. connection. And you mentioned in terms of that kind of then sparked your interest in finding out a bit more. But how did you then proceed with that? Did you do any work experience or things like that? Well, I went and actually met and observed the osteopath who treated my mother, in fact. Um, uh, he actually, um, in fact, unfortunately died actually a couple of years ago, a chap mm. called David Gilhooley. Um, and he was actually, uh, you know, one of the, there weren't so many osteopaths in those days going back um some some years um and he actually said come along and i watched him work and and we chatted about osteopathy and 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 spent some time together over those uh you know even before actually um yeah by the by my last years in school actually so when i was about 17 or 18 i went to meet him in fact yeah so that was the beginning that's really good that in terms of i'm guessing back then it was quite easy just to be able like i want to come and watch (laughs) and because i'm interested yeah, I think also he was a teacher at the time as well at the college. And I remember he, I think one of his roles was liaison with new students and people interested in osteopathy. So he he was sort of open to that. Uh, and that was kind of one of his roles and happened to be the chap that, you know, my mum had actually seen. So that was, that worked out really well. And you've also mentioned already quite briefly just about the fact that you've also taken students on yourself. Do you reckon kind of your experience with, with him being so open to, um, to letting you come and observe and, and learn, do you think that kind of helped when you then became in that position? Yeah, I mean, I did I, over the years, for about 10 years, I, I was sort of uh, running a demo clinic, as it's called, in sports injuries and rehab. So I used to have like a team of three or four students shadow me for a month. And um, I'd run a weekly clinic and they'd join me and then we'd have our patients uh, for that afternoon. And, and sort of I worked in that sort of team atmosphere and was sort of... Uh, collaborating with them and, and and they were second or third year uh students mm. at the time of osteopathy so you know so that that kind of way of working and being observed and working with with that team was something that we did yeah from the very beginning and certainly uh as I was a teacher in osteopathy in a sense later as well yeah so it was a useful experience and once you'd done your work experience how did you then you then went and applied straight for a course or yes yeah, so when I was actually finished my A levels in fact I kind of knew pretty well straight away that I wanted to apply. So I, I applied uh, as through UCA, I think it was at the time called, um, to actually uh, apply for a place. And I got a place at the British School of Osteopathy, uh, which has now become uh, UCO, University College of Osteopathy, uh, latterly in the last few years. Um, so yeah, it was a, a smaller profession 
In fact, I think my registration number is 721. So that was 721. <laughs> wow. No um, so, but it's been growing and growing since. And now there are yeah, five or 6,000 osteopaths in the UK. So over the last X years, it's grown quite a lot. Um, but yeah, I mean, that was the earlier days. Uh, and every year the profession has sort of grown. So yeah, that was the Amazing. beginning for that, yeah. Um, I guess that takes us on to the second part of the question. Um, so we'd love to know about your current job role, what you're doing at the moment. Okay, well, at the moment, I mean, it's been, I think with the role that I've had, it's um, we're often self-employed. In fact, I have been self-employed, actually, in a sense, since the beginning of my career. Um, so okay. I am director, if you like, of my own practice. I've got a couple of practices, one in Berkshire and one in Maidervale in London, near Paddington. Uh, and actually, uh, having run practices, worked with GPs, worked in GP practices um, and had a number of contracts actually for, with GPs over the years as well um, for, for providing osteopathy as a service to their, to their group of practices. Um, and then I worked in a number of gyms and health club environments in London and out near Reading. Um, so that built quite a lot of experience in a sense within um, those sort of sectors directly within the, the health service, if in a sense, and close to the GPs. Um, mm. um, that that sort of led to a lot of lecturing and work, actually, over time. And you sort of asked me what my current role is, but it's sort mm. of been a fluid evolution over the years. Um, mm. And so, yeah, a lot of lecturing in hospitals, workshops for GPs and nurses mm. uh, over the years. And then most recently, in fact, the big change I wanted to make was actually to start a community practice which, in fact, in the Maid of Ale practice, it's actually within a public library. It's within Westminster City Council's public library at Maid of Ale, which oh, wow. is, <laughs> is very different. And I approached them a few yeah. years ago, and we've been evolving that uh, slowly over the last couple of years. And that's been quite a different way into connecting to the community and working with other projects. So my current work is very much more community connected and we run children's events at half term uh, and help desks and all sorts of things that we've uh, that we've been running for the last couple of years. So there are projects still uh, being worked on as we speak, but mm. uh, that's what's been going on more recently, uh, pre-COVID-19, pre I have to say. Of course, yeah. of course. I was just going to ask if you found it um, easy sort of um, setting up your own your own practices, how, how you found that process, just for any potential osteopaths listening who might be interested in doing that or... Well, osteopaths or anybody, I suppose the point is uh, that the position was certainly at the time, it was very much the only way. Um, yeah. But I think being able to talk about and share, you know, what, what you your knowledge and, and collaborate in the way I was doing with GPs and actually even with the corporate sector. Um, I was working very closely with a number of big corporations who had me in through their HR departments to speak to members of staff and treat even members of staff at head offices of various companies. So there were a whole lot of things that were happening uh then that were, were, were you know um very much part of the beginning of my my career so but you know it, i think you can't you can't just sit and wait for it to happen you have to go out and actually uh you know join in see what's going on connect with with uh, the community really of all sorts professionals and and the public so that's really the tip i would give anybody who's starting out yeah and obviously now your role's definitely taken more of kind of like the a leadership role do you still get quite a lot of clinical time with like your patients and if you, if if there's definitely more of the leadership side are you do you miss that kind of patient contact i enjoy both i mean to be honest with you mm -hmm. i feel it's in me to do both roles so the leadership the teaching developing new material in that kind of way i find stimulating and interesting 
Um, and in fact, you know, today I've been in practice all day seeing patients um, and I, you know, I find that equally interesting to do as well. But it's nice to have a balance. And after 32 years, you know, it's nice yeah. to have that variety. I think that's the key. Um, and it, I always I think probably always had the variety from the beginning, to be honest, because that's just my my perhaps nature or what I would need. Um, so, uh, yeah. So I think I've always had a, a kind of, you know, lots of things going on, writing press articles for the newspapers. And I was mm. president for our institute. So I was on TV and radio and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, that that was kind of took up time every week. It was kind of part of the part of the job, really. So, uh, yeah, you've definitely kept it very varied. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's been good for that. So I must yeah. say, that's definitely, definitely a, a feature of my career, definitely, yeah. And you said that you kind of, you've done bits of of sport and you've done like GP practices and things like that. Is there, mm -hmm. do you have a particular like favourite or they kind of both lend themselves to, they both start, they're both different, but you both, you enjoy them both the same? Well, we got, we got different sorts of patients, I think, from the GPs. Mm. Sometimes we've got GPs that were the end of the road. GP didn't quite know what to do next. And so, they used to call them, I guess they used to refer to people as heart sink patients at the time, but I think that's probably not a term used so much these <laughs> days. But, um, but that's what they said then. And, and it was kind of where they just didn't know what to do next um, with people who'd had various medications or had tests and it was inconclusive and they just weren't sure. And so we got those people to sort of really, you know, pair back and work out what was going on with them and look at the biopsychosocial side of things. So that was a very interesting part of the work then. Um, mm. And actually, you know, and having access to records and talking to GPs directly about patients, which we didn't always have the opportunity to do, was great. Um, so working in that environment meant, you know, we could really have a good uh, rapport with the GPs and find out mm. who were the most appropriate cases for the osteopath to see or refer to someone else. Um, so that was kind of good for that point of view. And then working in gyms with personal trainers and people like that, I think um, that sort of knowledge expanded really uh, to some degree about the goods and the bads about certain types of exercise and the better ways forward to, you know, motivate people and make sure that they were getting the right kind of exercise for them individually rather than just doing something that was off the shelf. And I think that's something, you know, that, that one could observe within, you know, the gym or the health club environment, um, working closely with those people. So, and you also could even come into the gym with someone and look at it in a very bespoke way as to what they may have been doing that might aggravate things or might improve yeah. the way they're working out, which again was a very useful learning um, platform in a sense. Yeah. I know there are um, extended scope physios who, who work in things like independent prescribing and injections, that sort of thing. Do you know, are there any, any osteopaths that do that sort of thing or advanced training um, to do those sorts of things? Well, in terms of prescribing, no, although there are osteopaths and options there were to develop that area about that sort of prescribing. Prescribing exercise, you mean, or medication? Sorry. Medication, yeah. Yeah. Well, so some osteopaths have an interest in it, but again, we're not we're not prescribing professionals. Um, so um, I think certain osteopaths might be interested in that. But you see, going back to the point about working closely with the GPs, we could discuss their medication. We're fully aware of the range of medication people take, not just for MSK problems, but for you know, most of health. Um, yeah. So if we have concerns or we have issues or blood test results or whatever, then, you know, that was often the case that we could work directly or do work with the GP to find out what's going on because, uh, you know, it's just to look at things from a fresh angle and even make new referrals and new suggestions in our letters back to the GP. It was quite common, you know, to pick up things in different ways and look at things differently with fresh eyes that was often very useful to GPs. I mean, it was certainly uh, valued by them, definitely. Yeah, it sounds like yeah, a very no, 
global relationship yeah yeah because i think the same i think you get um physios working in we can i guess from our perspective we can speak from like the physio point of view um in terms of yet yeah, physios in gp practices as well do you ever get to do any kind of like collaborative working with with other ahps or with particularly well, physios I think with physios, possibly, I mean, the, the coaching work I've done has taught me an awful lot because I've been coaching uh, paramedics, midwives, occupational therapists. So that's been my mm. recent experience. So that's been really quite firsthand, not working with them directly in a professional capacity, but 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 coaching uh, for the mm. Council of Deans. So that's how I've learned quite a lot. Um, so the Council of Deans of Health have run an amazing uh, 150 Leaders Programme, which I have been very closely involved with as a, as a coach. Um, mm. And then in practice, yes, I mean, a lot of osteopaths do work in multidisciplinary teams um, with physios and a range of other practitioners. Um, so I think I think that's becoming more the case rather than less the case as time goes on. Um, and I think, you know, challenges actually like COVID-19, but also even the Olympics brought in, the London Olympics brought in an osteopathy team to join the physios and others that they'd never been, you know, so that was, that, that was the first time that had happened, which then got replicated again in Brazil. So, um, yeah, and taking on, yeah, yeah, so things, you know, things are more open and I think people are more interested in learning from each other rather than sort of keeping territory separate or keeping in their silos, which is a very mm. positive thing for patients, to be fair, because, uh, I mean, you know, I think that's hugely important, a hugely important evolution to ensure patients get the best care in the most, you know, timely way, really, that's most appropriate for them. And I think that's that's often been a problem, actually, over the years that I've seen in 32 years. You know, mm. I've seen people reach, reach a brick wall with something and then being left at the end of a corridor, you know, almost like literally at the end of a corridor, but <laughs> to the end uh, where... You know, they don't know who to turn to. And, you know, like with my mum's case, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, yeah. she had, had not been directed by anybody and was left hanging until literally a non-medical professional, someone who'd seen an osteopath, recommended her, you know. Mm. And wouldn't it have been amazing if it had been a different story and, and a quicker referral and less suffering, you know. And I still remember her suffering. That's a long time ago. But we still see it now where there's people not always... Um, you know sharing and 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 uh you know sharing their knowledge really for the best outcomes um you know i guess that's one of the things we're trying to do obviously on on quite a small scale with this page with the with the podcast and and our facebook pages mm. trying to trying to promote the role of of ahps and and make the wider public a bit more aware that we are here and we we have quite valuable services to offer yeah, I think I think GPs need to know AHPs have got a lot more to offer than perhaps they realise, and I think that's mm. starting to happen, and that there's a need for it, let alone anything else, because GPs can't do everything. Um, I actually met Suzanne Rastrick and actually took on at the time the AHP role when I was president actually of our institute. So that oh, wow. was uh, the first meeting, one of the first meetings I went to as president. In fact, was that one. Um, so you know that that was interesting. I mean, things things are different and shifting and changing. I think um, certainly from some years back. I mean, you know, sadly, I'll tell you. I mean, this is off the record. I treat you know <laughs> quite a lot of physios who come to me, kind of almost secretly, to see the osteopath. You know, um, and it, it, it's a bit of a sort of weird situation. Um, you know, from top football teams, all sorts of people I've treated who physios working for their various things, and they kind of want to try to see what an osteopath can do. And I think, wow, you know, that's great they're doing it on an individual basis. But, uh, you know, it's a shame it's not a little more open for everybody to to experience what might be best for them or might work for them at least, you know. So, uh... yeah, I think I agree. in terms of 
I guess it's from all, uh, we're trying, as I said, with this page and with the podcast to make people a bit more aware of what we do. But it's mm. also letting other allied health professionals know what other allied health professionals do as well. Absolutely. So being Absolutely. aware of what can bring to the table and just being able to maybe identify gaps in our own practices which actually can be very quite nicely filled by another and that it's not about um it's definitely not about one being better than the other just maybe one being more appropriate for the patient at the time totally totally and absolutely agree with you i think i i went several times as president and since to the ahp conference that's in which month i don't know it's all moved because of which year <laughs> last year <laughs> i think and you know and i met suzanne rastrick there again and, and and lots of the other people there and you know it was inspiring to be in a place full of ahps who are so dedicated to the cause and to, to taking forward the the voice of ahps but also when we met in the networking breaks you know which we had Everyone was going, I really want to know more about everybody else. I mean, this was what people were mm. looking for. It was, it was palpable that this was really... Um, so what you're doing with this idea of off-the-record recording, I mean, it's just like this is absolutely, I think, what AHPs need to act as a, a stronger force to understand each other more. I mean, I'm totally supportive of your... This is why I contacted you, in fact, um, because, <laughs> because I'm kind of thinking this is exactly what's needed. So it's great. Thank you. So, Robin, you touched on it a little bit earlier um, in terms of things being quite different in, in practice because of everything that's happening with with COVID-19. Yeah. And what we've been doing has been um, we shared our own personal experiences about what's kind of been happening around um, our changes of work during COVID and just wanting to find out a little bit more about the professionals that we interview, mm. their experience. Um, it might not even be that people have been necessarily, we call it like redeployed or anything like that, but just kind of how their practice has changed and how it's kind of affected them personally. Are you well, able to yeah, talk about Absolutely. Yeah. I'm on several Facebook osteopathy groups online. Um, so there was an awful lot of clearly like with all professional groups a lot of chat and a lot of exchange and a lot of webinars and a lot of discussions so it's been a huge time of change and learning and adaptation um in fact one of the things i did for the council of deans was actually a webinar at the very beginning actually on innovation and adaptation in a crisis type of thing because mm. everybody was going you know you know what what on earth is going to happen and um I think for osteopaths, certainly the calls were coming in. People wanted to be seen, couldn't be seen because we had to close the doors um, for, for a certain amount of time. And people actually started to evolve uh, to do telehealth. I mean, there was a large uh, chip yeah. to offer that. And so we did it. Other people did it. It was difficult because people who know what an osteopath do, going back to Joe's mm. original introduction, want hands-on treatment and they want that connection. And um, so that was difficult because people who'd already seen an osteopath wanted more of the same and people who yeah. hadn't weren't sure what they were getting anyway so that was quite difficult but I think people started um, from an initial phone call to actually say do you know what I'm going to try a telehealth call for osteopathy and the assessment protocol what you said Joe at the beginning is the approach is about you know the assessment uh, as well as actually the hands-on I think some people perhaps forget that part but actually how we look at that sort of global perspective and lifestyle and those sort of questions and the way we do our case history which has its certain nuances and, and style of difference I think translated very well as telehealth actually um, mm. you know we got great feedback from the people who decided to actually you know have have a session um, and um, I think osteopaths perhaps hadn't been uh, as much 
uh, into prescribing exercise. I had, because that was my teaching background and what I've worked with in gyms, as we've discussed. But um, hmm. some osteopaths found it a little harder, but actually have started to embrace sort of bespoke and individual kind of exercises for, for their people they've met on telehealth. So I think it's shifted people. Um, and I think, yeah. yeah, I think actually, it's a long answer to a short question, but I think a lot of, a lot of osteopaths have actually realized their skill sets in, you know, rehabilitation can be quite broad, particularly relating to respiratory mechanics um, as well. Um, and I think that's come to the fore, actually, recently. We're getting a lot of people coming um, who are suffering post-COVID-19, who are still breathless, and their function in terms of their diaphragm, diaphragm function and so on, and ribcage function is poor so that's what we're seeing yeah yeah do you think that um you said that you think a lot of osteopaths have, have realized their their um capabilities in terms of rehabilitation do you think that any of these new practices in terms of doing um tele telecare and also exercise prescription do you think that's then gonna continue on um hopefully and extend beyond this COVID-19 period I think so. I think from what I'm reading about all health professionals, you know, the access to a health professional is kind of key and, and making that easier works. I think the technicalities of, you know, using video calls and so on is something that might not be open to everybody. Um, one thing I experienced, we, we recorded actually during the beginning of, I can't remember when now, I think March, um, I did a co uh, production with the Royal Borough of Windsor and Maidenhead, where one of my practices is. Um, and we did something on top tips and we did a virtual home visit um recording which wow. um was interesting because normally you know with a video call you might see someone sitting there and chat to them but actually seeing more of their home environment um and latterly even doing actually a home visit with people literally but actually with a telehealth call as well the idea of looking at how they sit where they lie how they move um not just the basic examination but their lifestyle issues you can actually explore much more readily actually in their home via video so that was that was quite a revelation actually as to how much uh, you could actually pick up about that how they're working how they're sitting everything everything came up and it was easier to find prompts to the case history questions based on the fact you'd actually seen where they are you know yeah in the context of their own home that's yeah. I hadn't thought about yeah. that really. yeah good so, point. so that was that was huge for me and and uh, you know you could do a case history sort of out of water where you're just chatting about stuff but when you were there, you could say, is that the chair you're sitting on? Is that the desk? Yeah, that's so true. You know? Yeah, that's so like, true. Well, I can see an awful lot of points where that could be the issue or that could be some of the background reasons why you're suffering from headaches or neck pain or, or pins mm. on your arms, you know, because you're using three pillows. It's not great. <laughs> you know, so those are the things we all know as physios, osteopaths and so on. But, you know, seeing it was just amazing. I mean, really handy. And, and actually, more to the point, the diagnosis and the observations sunk home with the patient because <laughs> there was no hiding from yeah. it really you know so yeah. yeah i guess you're more on a bit of a performance when you're um attending a clinic you can kind of form <laughs> yeah. yourself and i don't know make yourself appear like you're doing a bit a bit better or following advice a bit better whereas in your own home you're probably more easily caught on the spot or caught yeah, out there's no escaping there's no escaping there's no escaping and it's there it's real no so i think that's there's, there's a benefit in that from covid19 times and and i think that's diagnostically really handy uh and management wise it's handy as well because you can follow up and see if they've actually bothered to <laughs> to listen and, and change things even on a follow-up call <laughs> so. yeah, it's like a hair still there. why haven't you gotten rid of that chair exactly <laughs> And how about, Robin, from more of like a personal experience, how have you been um, kind of managing everything and 
in terms of with lockdown and things like that? Well, you know, it, it, it was tough because the practice was shut and mm. um, I'm a project person, so I've always got something to do. <laughs> so, mm. um, so largely in the beginning, I must say, I perhaps oversunk myself into things that I just wanted to get cleared up and done in terms of teaching projects and bits and pieces I just wanted to pull together. Um, so, you know, that was kind of keeping me busy because at the end of the day, uh, I have a five and a half year old as well, even at my ripe old age. Aww. And uh, well, it was very lovely, but it was very, well, as we know, having what went on over the last few months has been hard. So I think yeah. um, what I did do, we'd, we <laughs> ended up doing a load of recordings with um, Active Westminster, who look after fitness and health in Westminster Council. Um, okay. And we did stuff on sports injuries with them and preventing them. And we're speaking to various people. Um, from that organization and and I think it became very apparent about you know looking after yourself in fact even as a health professional one of the key things was not to ignore oneself and one's own needs because um, it's very easy to get caught up in everybody else and doing the right thing for them um, so I think the big lesson was walking a lot more I always walk quite a bit but actually getting out you know early in the morning to go for a good you know half an hour 45 minute hour walk um, was very important for the mental health definitely um you know so i think that that was important and i think taking time out properly to get away from the phone and even leave the phone at home actually to go out on that walk was a big lesson um so yeah there were things i mean now it almost seems like a bit of a blur looking back on, on months of, <laughs> of all that's gone on but uh, it honestly does even yeah. when we were at, talking about our like experiences of being like redeployed into certain areas that at the time just seemed so like it was such a big change from are first clinically and um also just like us personally but yeah it does now just feel like that almost it's not that it didn't happen it definitely did but it it does almost feel like that 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 period wasn't even there (laughs) there's a legacy i think people are chatting more and i think still you know i mean luckily thank goodness the coffee shop nearby opened up and and has chairs outside because that was a godsend (laughs) um and uh, I must say, chatting to people there, you know, at a distance was was quite therapeutic, actually, just and even people normally would never have perhaps chatted to. So, there, you know, there's been there's been some changes in, in a sort of uh, that kind of way as well. And getting out more whenever possible, you know, seemed to become the imperative, definitely. So uh, yeah, we were touching on that with our um, our last podcast with Lindsay. We were talking about how this whole situation does seem to have had a positive, you know, effect of getting more people outside and mm-hmm. being a bit more active. Not necessarily, you know, actively exercising, but at least encouraging themselves to spend at least a bit of time outside every day, which I think has been a, a one slight positive. Yes. Yeah. No. Definitely. 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 And sharing more and connecting with people. I mean, you know, that biopsychosocial thing about supporting the community and 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 getting people aware of people's emotional mental health needs as well as their physical needs i think that's become much more out there in terms of people getting it that uh, professionals friends family whatever being more supportive of people's needs generally i think has become more apparent um so i think that's a good thing uh overall yeah absolutely Okay, now it's time to go into um, our recurrent section for all of our podcasts, which we're calling the three fives. So, Joe, do you want to take it away? Yeah. Um, so, Robin, the first of our questions uh, might be a bit difficult thinking back now, but when you first qualified, where did you see yourself five in five years' time? 
Gosh, that is, it is a while ago. Um, I kind of <laughs> always felt very strongly that I wanted to run my own practice and be an independent practitioner at the beginning. Certainly, that's changed latterly, but I think um, that was an important driving force for me to get out there and start working um, and running a practice. Um, there was a lot to learn because actually running a practice at the beginning, there weren't many lessons on that. Um, so one had to really sort of uh, network and and that that was what the beginning was really and speaking to certainly to GPs a lot working as I mentioned earlier closely with GPs um, and they would seem very open actually whether it's because I was young and fresh out of college they gave me a chance I'm thinking maybe it was um, but that sort of was where I wanted to go over the first few years definitely uh, of, my, of my practice um, I think the key bit was I think I made a note of this earlier was that when I qualified or even while I was studying actually people say what's that? What, what, what's an osteopath? What are you about? Now, actually, that still comes up now, but mostly, <laughs> but mostly a lot less. And at the time, you know, people showed actually also a lot of interest in, in, you know, what it was and what it was about. So I kind of felt it was part of my remit for the first few years to get out there and share with all different groups, whether it was uh, health interest groups, GPs, nurses, uh, at hospital, various talks I was giving. So I was doing quite a lot of press uh, all sorts of stuff, really, from a very, very beginning, um, and, and, and certainly postgraduate GP centres. So even at the age of 22, 23, 24, 25, I was out there and getting invited back to speak, you know, quite often, actually, at uh, various hospitals in Berkshire and, uh, and London. Yeah. So. And you mentioned um, the sort of what does an osteopath do? I know mm. with um, physio, there are a few um, sort of generalised opinions of amongst the amongst the public of what physio do, which are quite limited. Are there any sort of um, any that you've picked up on any sort of public opinions of what an osteopath is where they haven't really quite got the picture? Um, well, they still perhaps target much too much about the manipulation, the, the mobilisation. Um, we do have a certain style of low, what we call low amplitude um, uh, thrust mobilisation techniques uh, again, and they use them much more gently uh, to create the manipulation than perhaps some people may think. Um, that the big crack, if you like, of a joint moving is not really <laughs> the big aim and the big deal, uh, but it does. You know, sometimes there can be, but again, it's just it's just an important point that people do perhaps target everything down to manipulation, for example, which it really is not about. Um, and I think that's something to put to rights. Really, the assessment style is so important. That global view, um, I think, is very much the osteopathy uh, element that I love. Um, and keeping, standing back, we were always told when we were training, it's almost like stand back and then stand back again when you're looking at the patient. Don't get drawn by example the area of pain so much as look at the dysfunction and look at what's contributing towards that target of pain or that that point of pain but actually look at the targets and look at the functionality around it that's failing or not contributing perhaps to the area you know of dysfunction uh, and pain, yeah so. seeing the person as a whole rather than focusing on on one specific thing well yeah and it and it takes experience because the thing is that one is i mean patients are very passionate about their pain and um being strong enough to stand back from that and not just be drawn to the pain as the practitioner is something that is really uh, difficult because that passion is there and the patient wants attention. They want they want that bit touched, treated, looked after. So sometimes that's actually quite, um, that takes, can I say experience, but it takes that stand back approach, which is hard to do when you just qualify, to be fair. Uh, it can even be hard to do when you've been qualified 25 years. But I think <laughs> that standing back is is almost like, 
just hold on a sec, let's pause, let's take a breath, let's think about this before we dive in with treatment. So that's something certainly I've learned over the years and it's something, yeah, that's uh, sure. part, of, part of my work. And the second part of that question, um, I know you mentioned, you know, you've seen yourself opening up a private practice and I think it, you, you know, you've done that and, and much beyond and it sounds like you're, you're doing loads of different things at the moment, actually. Um, so this might be a bit of a tricky question, but if you weren't working in your current job role, what mm -hmm. other area would you work in or what do you think you would be doing? A drama therapist. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I love when I've treated drama therapists, actually, I haven't met many professions, but treated in that sense um, as patients of mine. I just found the whole way the psychotherapy, drama therapy approach to exploring emotions and feelings and, and looking at emotion, literally the mobility, the function and how one expresses oneself through one's emotions is just such an interesting field so to me it kind of connects with my osteopathy I did actually quite a lot of theatre directing um, some years ago again and some acting but quite a lot of theatre directing so that motivation behind action and motion I find really interesting and I, that so therefore drama therapy would be something I'd be really interested to, to do yeah that's so good to hear actually because again in terms of just trying to get the um, word out about other allied health professionals um, mm definitely like drama th drama therapists are, are ones that people haven't really heard of that much um mm. so that's actually quite nice to hear and yeah even with the whole collaborative working that would be quite a good combo wouldn't it um osteopathy it and drama therapy um, amazing i'd love it <laughs> <laughs> maybe that can be the next uh the next project that's actually maybe. the next master's degree maybe well, we'll, see. we'll see but no that's an area of interest and I think it's got a great deal of benefit for people communities and so on so and I think it fits to some degree with why people are I'm saying locked in that their mechanics and their bodies have become blocked as well as how they express and how they feel about life and how they fail to express perhaps themselves thoroughly enough I think that's quite that's quite a part of it so it links completely yeah Definitely. Love a bit of cross-promotion for the for the AHPs. That's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Robin, the next question, next of the three fives, is kind of doing a bit of a summary of the five things you didn't know about osteopathy before you started studying it. Right. Gosh, that's a toughie. Um, mm. Well, yes, one of the lessons I had when I was studying, I'll share with you, actually, it was a very emotional moment. I treated a lady um, as a student undergraduate, actually, as part of a, a demo clinic, um, who had a very acute back pain and sciatica. She'd also been around the houses all over the place and um, had come in to the clinic. And I saw her about three or four times over perhaps a month. And she started sort of crying on the last session and told me that she'd actually been, you know, near actually feeling suicidal and oh. that her family were in a terrible state. She'd had several years of sciatica and back pain and had felt like a failed mother and a whole list of things. And I remember this from like we're talking, are we all talking 34 years ago? I heard this mm. was 33 years. And I still remember it. And she said she was so grateful and so happy. Now that's to say, you know, with what, what we've managed to achieve and, and how she was feeling and how it changed her life. So it made me realize that a hands-on treatment like osteopathy, although it wasn't being a surgeon saving someone's life in the sense, you know, of a road traffic accident, you know, uh, sort of saving a life. Um, in a sense, it still had that massive role to play that almost was saving a life in this case. So that was something I, have learned and have really appreciated that kind of feeling perhaps that I didn't realize before I started studying mm. and, and since so and I've heard and it, it since from people yeah and you yeah. talk about not necessarily saving a life but you're saving someone's quality of life which I think yes. it's yes. all well and good in terms of just 
being able to make sure somebody doesn't um doesn't pass away but they're going to have to live this life and they need to be able to live it the best that they can so if we're able through our job to be able to do that then that's that's such a big part of it yeah and i think also the knock-on effects i think that's what i've also learned about one pivotal person in the family for example um who can't for example another lady i treated a few years ago um told me you know she i was trying to say to her look can you just do a little less horse riding at the time that was a different approach (laughs) Um, and you know she was getting back pain and back pain and really suffering and she said it's my only two hours a week that i feel alive and good you know Mm. so I realised my motivation here is to keep her horse riding, to keep her happy, to keep her doing what she can do to make herself feel better. Because at the end of the day, everything else with all her other things in life were very negative. I mean, we won't get into all that, but that, that was a very negative um, feeling she was having. And, uh, you know, and that made me think, wow, you know, here am I supporting something and someone particularly who's particularly shared something very deep to them. Um, and I think that's the other thing then is the sharing. You know, that's what I've suddenly realised getting to know people and get to know patients, the the idea of the continuity of care, which again is disappearing in general practice a bit, um, mm. is is that that getting to know a family, getting to know people referred through a particular person, their friends and their family, you sort of get a real depthy feel for that person, what's important to them, who's important to them, who do they care enough about to refer to the osteopath for help. I mean, it's a whole kind of very interesting um, cycle, really, that word of mouth connection that I've realised is, well, that is what osteopathy is. Most of it, the osteopaths who become osteopath because of word of mouth and indeed the patients who tell others to go and see someone um it's an amazing what's the word honor really i suppose to be getting that kind of uh, level of appreciation amongst your patients who you know in private practice they are paying their bills but they still want to tell other people to say come and see you which is amazing you know yeah. it, it's it's and that doesn't go away ever as a as a as a sort of uh, a good feeling really uh, all mm. the way into 30, into 30 odd years in practice um, that's good to know <laughs> yeah yeah and that's that's you know that is a makes the role something that's evolved over time I mean I know you know th- those sort of feelings are are what keeps me I think interested in in the job that those emotional drivers and so on and I, I think the other the other thing I'd add if I may um was mm-hmm. about the range of conditions which has amazed me as well because mm. when we trained I mean certainly there were you know, the things one studies in orthopaedics and the osteopathy course as it is and was, but a lot of it was targeted towards diaphragm function, um, as I've mentioned, obviously with COVID-19, breathing function and and all sorts of tension headaches and and even, in fact, digestive, um, I wouldn't say uh, digestive uh, problems so much as the manifestations externally of those problems. So, so for example, you know, the back pain and the tension uh, because of various different um perhaps stress states but that have affected like an irritable bowel syndrome it's not about treating irritable bowel syndrome it's about treating the mechanics of the body around it um to give yeah. you know plants for things to start moving and working properly again so um so that that side of things is broader um than perhaps you know i'd anticipated as i've gone through my career you know those sort of the reasons people seek out an osteopath are quite broad actually mm. and surprisingly broad um yeah so yeah that's so interesting and it's so true I, I've noticed that definitely in my work as well just you come across so many different things and you're constantly learning so much because every patient is coming with a slightly different story and with a slightly yeah. different or can be a very different problem and, and actually sort of tapping into that and and trying to work out what's going on and what you can do I feel like there's mm. such a such a journey to be made with every patient 
Yes, I agree. And and in fact, keeping that fresh, what keeps it fresh every day is it's never the same, really. I mean, there are elements that are similar, but actually everybody's got a slightly different route in and that has to be uncovered and has to be understood, you know, by the practitioner, by you, by me, um, as we see that patient. So, you know, that's that's what keeps it fresh, you know. Exactly. I think that we got through your five things there, did we, I think? Ish. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, moving on to to the third question, um, yep. it's um, five things that you enjoy about your job. Gosh, well, I've said certainly the variety and challenge. I absolutely mm. think that's yeah. that's been yeah. huge. Um, but I think variety is key, and looking for other challenges. Certainly, I know. Um, I think, yeah, trying to trying to really look at also how the structure of the profession works. You know, it's it's. Being being the practitioner is one thing, but being a leader, being a healthcare leader, is something that I'm hugely uh, passionate about. Um, because I think I think that the experiences I've had in leadership and trying to learn those skills on the hoof, what I've realised is that um, by reading and studying and experience, um, this is something I've wanted to evolve. I'm not sure if this is answering the question entirely, um, but it's fine. To, it's fine. Trying, <laughs> wanted to try and evolve a little bit evolve um, leadership really as a collaborative format um, more and more interprofessionally but very much um, to help patients more by breaking down silos and so one of the one of the things I've been working on most heavily um, is actually a, what's called coguk.info um, and that is a project really looking at bringing healthcare professionals together and actually trying to evolve um, and it's launching actually in early September but it's but it's got a number of very useful modules for groups and for individuals, osteopaths and others to join together and actually kind of develop how they connect and how they know themselves and how they transmit that to the community and to other professionals. So that's something I've been working on for years effectively, but I've wanted to pull it together into a into a format for others really to try and see how they can work with it really. So that's, I don't know, yeah, that may have, that may have slightly um, <laughs> things around, but that, when I say that's what I enjoy about my job, that creativity and options for creativity I find mm. really important to keep it interesting and keep that, um, yeah, the interest factor because I think it's anyone who says they've got a boring job, well, you know, <laughs> you've got to look at it again and think about it differently because nothing's boring unless you make it boring. You know, uh, I think that's that's something that uh, is is really imperative. The other thing, actually, I would say, if I may, just yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, no, definitely. I'm on a bit of a roll. Is <laughs> never forget what you've learned before. I think you know other mm. skills that you picked up along the way. Um, can be directly usable. Like, for example, I said about, you know, the idea about um, drama therapy, you know, the acting I've done, the public speaking I've done, uh, the directing I've done, they've all taught me an awful lot of stuff that's linked in, you know, perhaps indirectly or now actually more directly into how I approach my career and how I approach where I'm going. So nothing's wasted, I think, is definitely another, you know, another thing um, that's important. I remember interviewing someone once and said, no, I'm changing career now. I don't, that's nothing I'm talking about anymore in the interview. And I thought, hang on a second. You just spent five years learning yeah. something else that could be a bit useful somewhere. So uh, that was, that was a shame that they saw it that way. Um, no, I so I think we talked yeah. about it in our first, um, in our podcast about the fact that, well, Joe's very, um, Joe's very good at drama and she's <laughs> honestly like so so good and I'm sure and I um, played tennis when I was younger but there's definitely been aspects of kind of the sporting side and the um, the competition aspect but then also just there's just elements of having to like 
travel on my own or being able to having to speak to lots of different people from like quite a young age which is definitely mm-hmm. you then tie that into our current profession which is very much talking to people and trying to communicate with people and speak to people mm-hmm. on their own level there's definitely ways to draw that in which I think is as you said you can't forget like where you've where you've previously been mm. no I yeah, think it's all good lessons yeah I've been um, doing Amdram since I was about 10 um, and I mm-hmm. definitely found, you know, I, I had a big break from it and then went back to it um, a couple of years ago. And I've definitely found th- those experiences have made me a lot more confident in terms of of um, presenting and just talking to people and, and make, you know, building relationships with different people. Um, I think there's so many, so many sort of transferable skills that you can get from pretty much everything that you do. Yes, also, and also even watching family members and others. I mean, your role models at college uh, when mm. you're studying and, and even family. My, my dad was a, a presenter and trainer for a big computer company, for example. So I used to sort of see that from the sidelines and it was kind of part of my upbringing, really. You know, so it's always been part of me somehow to perhaps emulate that in some ways. So, you know, it's um, it is part of the growth. And I think never put it to one side really it's always got good I mean you can take the pluses and the minus out but yeah definitely good stuff to have all those experiences so don't really yeah I mean it's I remember the days walking into a bookshop and thinking I haven't read all those or those plays or you know can't read them all Mm. but you know then you start and you think well I will read that and I will go and see that play or I will so it's stimulating different ways of thinking and being which is really actually an empathy way of dealing with patients as well finding a way into to getting to understand people big time So our final question um, is we'd love to know what you would tell people um, who are thinking about becoming an osteopath. Any advice or any top tips? Well, OK, um, that's a good question, actually. Let me just I did write this down earlier because I thought I've got to have a, a little bit of a crib sheet here. Um, <laughs> well, no, I think I think what we've been talking about, about it, collaboration and being open to collaborate owning your leadership and your mission and vision is really important from the very word go um so i'm talking about osteopath or any other healthcare professional i've tutored and coached a lot of them over the last few years and met a lot at the council of deans and Mm -hmm. i know that that mission and vision where you're going why you're doing it what you're about where you're headed what you want from it i mean i think these are very they're flexible and fluid but they need to be sort of quite defined rather than being sort of just in the clouds or just I mean struggling with the studying sometimes you know comes into it because it's hard work but at the same time getting to know yourself is absolutely critical as a person as an individual as a human uh, beyond almost anything else um, so you know I think that's the the big tip in general terms um, you know and being an osteopath certainly being self-managed is is really quite important um, you know, and that's that's really all, really. I mean, that's that's being open to opportunity. I think also, you know, not everything be selective, but I think um, certainly, as we've been talking just now, those opportunities and opportunistic learning uh, situations, you know, that's all part of the big picture. And I think, uh, you know, medical schools. I know for doctors and GPs, or even when I was just studying, I remember the pressure uh, was huge. And I think everyone's seeing medical health training in different in a different way, uh, humanizing and trying to make that bigger person that that's uh is is really imperative to produce better health care for the population um so i think and and, and self-care for that matter and would you say in terms of what work experience would be would be key for in terms of as like say a student or a sixth for a sixth former um thinking that potentially wanting to be 
wanted to be an osteopath that they should probably get some work experience well we don't, there's not formal work experience but going to observe a clinic or going to observe yeah. a practitioner can be possible um and i think seeing how that works how it works not just the the consultation but the whole process of running a practice and and how it sits i think is really quite important because i mean i think one thing i remember at the beginning of the ahps and osteopaths coming in because osteopaths are generally private practitioners who run a practice and have to make a living um it's you know not being employed directly it, it means you know there's something to be learned in a sense from the process of making a viable business out of a health business you know that that's just a fact it needs to make it needs to pay its bills and it needs to exist and continue and be there next year and the year after to see those people who are recommended or family members or people who come back and see you so there's something in that as a you know as a principle that is there beyond just the actual um health care skill sets although that's also relevant so the whole package yeah going to see if an osteopath perhaps will allow you to come and visit or one of the colleges of osteopathy um, I'm sure would encourage visitors who might then come and explore. They do have lots of open days and tours. I know that all over London and across the UK in the various colleges. So there aren't that many colleges of osteopathy, but the ones that there are are normally very open to allowing visits at certain times from from people who are at you know school leaver age uh, to actually come and observe and ask questions. So I think that's absolutely important to mm -hmm. ask those questions and explore it fully. Um, Obviously, you know, it's a smaller profession and it's a very different perhaps approach um, in, in some respects. And it's a different practice style as well, perhaps in that sense. So worth exploring if it suits you to do that. It may not, you know, and not everybody's, you know, cut out perhaps for that style of working. So, uh, Just a quick question in terms of obviously um, with the current the current age and the, the technological age that we now live in. Is there quite a lot to offer for say, if, again, for like students or, or sixth formers that were thinking of becoming an osteopath, is there much out there in like the social media world where they'd be able to um, just go and have a look and, and see if there's like information or videos and things like that? Well, I think YouTube is full of them and, and certainly Twitter. There's many Twitter groups um, which include osteopathic input as well. Um, I think there's a number of closed Facebook groups, obviously, for osteopaths, um, which are huge thousands of people worldwide. I mean, so, I mean, in terms of the American, European and UK osteopathy, they vary quite considerably. Um, so there's quite a lot, in a sense, to investigate what that's about. Certainly in America, there's 220,000 osteopaths, but uh -huh. they have a they're trained as doctors and they do osteopathy. So that's quite a different approach. Yeah. Um, you know, in the UK, um, there are a number of teaching institutions across the UK, about 250, I think it is, uh, 225, 250 students of osteopathy qualify each year. So it's not huge. Um, and, um, but that's, that's what's going on currently in quite a number of colleges. Um, so in Europe, it's different and regulated differently. In the UK, where osteopaths are regulated by the General Osteopathic Council, we have our own regulator who are uh, looking after osteopaths alone. And that is, you know, we are we are regulated, have the CPD regulations and all the things that many professionals do. Um, so, you know, that's, that's perhaps unique for the UK case. Um, but some of the other nations across Europe also have varying different um, teaching styles, and approaches and registrations uh, across Europe. So there's a lot of variety, but the European osteopathic uh, organizations, again, all online are possible. We could put them on the podcast at the end of it, a few links if you want, um, but uh, that's certainly, you know, there's quite a lot out there, certainly on osteopathy to, to dig into and have a look at. Um, yeah. 
So that sounds good. It would be good, yeah, as you said, it would be good to have a few of those links that we can share in share in the notes on the podcast. By all means, yeah, we can sort that out. Well, thank you so much. I think that brings us to the the end of this podcast. Um, thank you so much for for sharing all your 32 years worth of um, experiences. Has it been nice being able to reflect back a little bit? Well, I have to say it has. And I've even on the hoof thought of things I hadn't written down and thought about before. So it's actually been quite an emotion. It's not quite Desert Island Discs, but it's... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's um, it's been useful to reflect actually and value things that can be taken for granted. I think quite a lot of professionals get into what they do and know it sort of, you know, because it's part of their blood in a sense it's part of their life and it's sometimes good to well it definitely is good to go back and reflect on what you know where you've learned it who you've learned it from how it how it's changed you um how it's influenced your practice because i think it's easy to take it for granted and um you know and i think uh, it makes one feel actually um not that one doesn't have confidence in one's practice and skills but it kind of just feels more level it just finds a, mm. a sort of an easy point of an easy point to reach you think gosh been through quite a lot to get here it's not it's not yeah. been plain sailing, but it's uh, it is a journey and uh, it's not over yet as they say so uh, watch this space <laughs> <laughs> it's been really really interesting talking to you as well um and just hearing a bit more about about what you're doing in osteopathy in general so thank you so much yeah we that definitely really learned really a lot <laughs> well, well, that's great and thank you for being so friendly and great interviewers so thank you both of you so that's the end of episode three Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about Robin Landsman, we've put his social media details in our episode description, as well as some of the social media accounts and websites he's mentioned that would be quite good for people wanting to know more about osteopaths and osteopathy. We've got some amazing guests coming up in the next few months um, and we can't wait to share them with you. So see you soon.